0: Amen. If you have your Bibles copies of God's Word, turn with me to James. We'll be in chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. If you are visiting us um, and you look at the Bible in the chairs, it is found on page 1071. And if you do not own a Bible or a good Bible, please take that as a gift from us. James chapter 1 verses 9 to 12. I know Pastor Luke just prayed. I'm going to pray one more time for the preaching of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, as we come before you, eager to hear from you, God, we pray, Lord, that as you speak, you would build us up in the holy faith, that Christ would be made much of, God, may we all who are in Christ decrease, and may you increase. Give us ears to hear. Help me to preach, not by my strength, but by your spirit. May I preach for your glory alone, and we pray that you would use the preaching moment to conform us more to the image of Christ. It is in his glorious name that we pray, amen. If you are able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. James chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, The rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of God. Praise Praise be to God. God. You may be seated. February 5th, 2017, in Houston, Texas, it was the final game of the NFL season, the Super Bowl. And the two teams going at it were the Atlanta Falcons and the New England Patriots. And before the game, if you were a Patriots fan, you was feeling really good about your chances in your team winning the Super Bowl. You had Tom Brady. That's really all you need. But you also had Bill Belichick, an experienced team going against a very inexperienced team. And so the game takes place. And in the first half, if you're a Patriots fan, all of the air was sucked out of that stadium because you got hit in the mouth. As the Atlanta Falcons took the lead, the score was huge, 21-3 to at halftime. Think about how you were feeling. If you're a Patriots fan, I know Mario is. Likely despairing, discouraged, angry, mad, like what's going on, who are they? Maybe just a little glimmer of hope, but you pretty much like we ain't winning this thing, better luck next year. And then the second half started. Patriots got the ball, first drive, it didn't end in a touchdown or a field goal. Just when you thought things couldn't get any worse, it did. And then by the end of the third quarter, the score was 28 to nine. You went from being down 18 to now you're down 19. With 15 minutes left in the game, you are believing that it is over. Well, the fourth quarter, the unexpected happened. The exact reverse took place. Patriots went on a 19-0 run to even the score to where it goes into overtime. You're liking your chances. And then it's Tom Brady. And so Tom Brady does what he most normally do. He wins the game, and so they went back. They came back from being down 18 to 19 points to winning the Super Bowl. If you are a Patriots fan, you are extremely excited. You can't believe that the great reverse just took place. That within one half of a game, your team went from being down 18 to winning the entire Super Bowl. Amazing. Now, some of the Patriots fans, they may have dubbed that game or may have purchased the DVD to play that game all over again so they can watch it and keep on watching it. Now, as a Patriots fan, if you were to re-watch that game, how would you watch it? Knowing the outcome, being certain that your team is going to win in the very end, you'd probably still be frustrated in the first half. Man, that was a bad play. I can't believe. But, but, you know how it's going to end, and because you know the end, because you know the reverse at the end, that reality has bearings upon how you watch the game. There's great certainty there, gives confidence even when things look real bad and real ugly. But beloved, for we who are in Christ. We get to, we know what the Patriots fans experience, but we know it in an even greater sense. Because we know how everything is going to end in the very end. We know that Jesus has come, we know that He has inaugurated His kingdom. We know that by God's grace, we have been citizens of that kingdom, that we are co-heirs in that kingdom, and yet our current experience, our current circumstances does not reflect that reality. In this life, we experience trials, hardship of various kinds, where we are suffering pain on account of Jesus, and as the effect of being sinners in a sinful age. And yet we also know that there will be a great reverse in the end. That we who suffer, we will one day reign with Jesus. That we experience the cross now, but on that day we will receive the crown. And that reality, that eternal reality, we know by faith because God has revealed it, It has bearings upon how we live this day as we await that promise. We are awaiting that glorious reversal. See, beloved, we are to see our present circumstances with spiritual eyes. To see our present circumstances in light of the glorious future that is to come that God has promised for all who are in Christ. And as we do that, we endure. Just as the Patriot fan knows the end, and so they're willing to endure that first half, we know the end, and so we're willing to endure every difficult and painful circumstance. James is instructing us with this in this very passage. And so our big idea for this morning is this. Live in light of the reality of God's coming kingdom. Live in light of the reality of God's coming kingdom. Now, two points for us, two exhortations. One, glory in your spiritual position. Second, Endure trials with hope. Glory in your spiritual position and endure trials with hope. So, last time in verses five to eight, James exhorted us to pray for wisdom, knowing that God gives generously and ungrudgingly. The reality is, as we go through trials, we really need wisdom so that we can see our circumstances rightly. This brings us to our first point, glory in your spiritual position. Look at verse 9. James says, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. James is exhorting a specific group of church members in the body. They are described as brothers and sisters of humble circumstances. The ESV would call them the lowly. This is getting at their earthly position and status. They are the low of all the people on the earth. And the context here also includes those Christians who are physically or materially poor especially when you think about the contrast between this verse and verse 10. This group, they'll be described as those who are the have-nots. If the world was divided between the haves and the have-nots, that would be them. If the world was divided in two categories between the known and the unknown, or the somebodies and the nobodies, they would be the nobodies. They were on social media, they would not have a blue check mark by their name. They're on the very bottom of the social totem pole. These brothers and sisters, they, they love Jesus, and yet they have a low station because of what they lack finances and status. They're the ones who are overlooked, avoided, and despised. Their treatment from, na- from man does not reflect. God's heart towards them, though. The Lord loves them as they are made in his image. He has compassion upon them in their situation. In the old covenant with Israel, he actually prohibited injustice against the vulnerable, the poor, and the marginalized. He commanded for them to defend their cause and protect and provide for them. And for these brothers and sisters, they have trusted in Jesus, and so God delights in them. He has set his love upon them. He has chosen them in Christ. They are his children. They're exalted in his kingdom. He gives them a specific exhortation. He tells them to boast in your exaltation, to exalt, to glory in your high position, being eternally exalted in the coming kingdom. And the reason they were to glory in this isn't because they climbed the ladder of success. It's not because they actually hit the lottery or they found this get-rich-quick scheme. But the very reason they were to boast in this is because they know the Lord. As we read in our scripture call to worship, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24, the Lord says, but the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me. In the coming of Christ, the good news has come to the poor, and by the grace of God, they repented and trusted in Jesus Christ and have eternal life. And by the grace of God, he has raised up the lowly. They went from earthly rags to spiritual riches and eternal royalty. For being held with contempt by man to being crowned by God in Christ. The very dusty pavement that they here walk will one day will be reversed to where they will stomp on streets of gold. And the whole reason, the only reason, is because they know Christ. They're exalted in this high position. Because through faith in Jesus, we are united to Christ. We're positioned in royalty as we are seated with Christ in the heavens. James is exhorting us to glory in this. That though we may be despised, though we may be nobodies, though we may be overlooked by man, we are loved and eternally cherished by God. And here James makes known that our human experience, it does not reflect our eternal realities. Poverty and the lacking of status are not signs of divine displeasure. That is the other, coin, the other side of the coin of the prosperity gospel. And if you trust in Jesus, God gives you health, wealth, material possessions, status, and being made known here in this life. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Case in point, Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten Son, when he became man, he was not born in the Hilton. He was born in the barn. His roommates were cattle. He didn't grow up in Beverly Hills or Bel Air. He grew up in Nazareth, which is more like Compton in South Memphis. In his earthly ministry, he himself would say that the son of man, he said that the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And yet at his baptism, the skies parted, and God said that this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So, James here, he's exhorting us to glory in our eternal, exalted position in Christ. Now, if we're going to actually do that, beloved, it requires that we walk by faith because our experience by sight is the very opposite. But God's word is true. And so if we're going to glory in this, if we're going to boast in this, beloved, we have to meditate on who Jesus is and what he has done and the promises that we have in him. We have to dwell on the reality that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ Jesus. If we're going to glory in our exaltation, it demands that we read God's word, that it renew our minds, and that we rehearse God's promises. And that we remind one another of the eternal reality that we have in Jesus. Well, James not only address this group, he also addresses another group. Look at verse 10. He says, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. Now, commentaries differ on whether or not the rich here are Christians. Truth be told, there are good reasons for why both of them, well, good reason why they differ. I've read a number of commentaries on it, and I can completely understand why they land where they land. Those who say that these are unbelievers, they believe that James here is likely being sarcastic. And in verse 11, the analogy of the flower falling, is referencing Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 to 8. James is applying it here to the rich, and that Isaiah chapter 40 is about judgment, that man dies. And if you look in James chapter 2, James speaks very harshly about the rich, and he does the same thing in chapter 5. So there's credence for why many believe that the rich here are unbelievers. There's also credence for why many believe that the rich here are believers, Think about parallelism, the previous verse. James is speaking to specific Christians in this earthly status. They are lowly. And then he contrasts, he's addressing some other Christians who are in a different earthly status. They are the rich. You can see this parallelism, especially in the Greek of the syntax. Even in Jeremiah chapter 9, our call to worship, it says, Let not the wealthy boast in their wealth. Let them boast in the fact that they know the Lord. It's also true that the rich gathered as they are part of the covenant community. And many commentaries would say that his words here are not as harsh as the words that he give in chapter 2 and chapter 5. So, Which is it? I'll let you wrestle with it. (laughs) Cards on the table, I believe slightly that these are believers. But at the same time, I can understand why one would believe otherwise. But regardless of what you believe, there's still a word for us to hear and an exhortation for us to heed. James says, let the rich boast in his humiliation. And So before we get into the text, let's first talk about wealth, money. You know, this is part of the benefit of expositional preaching. You get to hit the topics that are in the text. So let's talk about wealth. Now to be honest and to be upfront the possession of wealth is not sinful in and of itself. Scripture doesn't denounce the possession but it does denounce the love of it. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 For those who want to be rich fall into temptation a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. There are Christians who were wealthy back then as there are now. That wealth may have been received through an inheritance or through their occupation. But either way, what should be true of any Christian with wealth is a statement that I am not as rich as I could be. And the reason is because Christ has their heart. They don't spend it all for themselves nor store it all for themselves, but they are willing and eager to share and be generous with others, giving to those in need, giving for the advancement of the gospel, seeing their finances for what it truly is, a stewardship, that they may honor and glorify Jesus. Paul also gives exhortation to the rich in the same book, 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy, Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Wealthy Christians are to be generous because the reality is, beloved, our bank statements are theological statements. They actually reveal what and who we treasure. And if we treasure God's kingdom, it will be evident in our generosity. May this be true of us, beloved. Now, some people here may consider themselves to identify with the lowly because of their socioeconomic status. They say, man, pastor, I make very little. I save very little, if anything at all, which is real. But in comparison to all the world, we're some of the richest people on the planet. The poverty line around the world is $2.15 a day. That can't get you a tank of gas, a gallon of gas, and that can't get you a cup of Starbucks i not saying this to guilt trip any of us. Beloved, whether or not you are lowly or rich, the exhortation is to have spiritual eyes and to glory in your position in Christ Jesus. Verse 10, James says, but let the rich boast in his humiliation. Again, I believe that these are Christians who are wealthy and the exhortation is for them to refuse to boast in their riches. But instead they are to boast in their lowliness. They are, they have humbled themselves, and what money can't do for them. Seeing that in their income, that thing may hit that bank account, and they can transfer money between accounts, but it will never transfer from the physical to the spiritual. They know that Jesus himself They know that Jesus himself says that blessed are the poor in spirit, not blessed are the financially rich. They know that without Christ, they are spiritually impoverished and are in need of Jesus Christ. They need his righteousness, and they can't buy it. Knowing that the Beatitudes said that blessed are the humble, for the humble will inherit the earth, not the proud. So they're humbling themselves. They boast more in what money can't do for them. It may be able to buy them friends, but it can't buy forgiveness or favor from God. It can buy happiness in this life, but it can't buy heaven. It may influence one to have their head up in the clouds, but it will not prevent their body from going into the grave. But Christ can do everything that money can't. Our forgiveness... As we read in our scripture assurance of pardon, our forgiveness wasn't purchased by silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb who laid down his life for our salvation. He secures our redemption. He grants us citizenship in his eternal kingdom. He defeated Satan's sin and the grave, walking out of the grave. And for all who trust in him, who are united to him by faith, we too will rise. The rich who are in Christ, we boast in that we know the Lord, and it wasn't because we were rich, but because God is rich in mercy. So we do not identify with our finances, but we identify with our humble Savior. Love it. There's a real temptation that comes with being rich as the poets Sean Combs and Christopher G Wallace made known mo money mo problems cuz being rich comes with real temptation a temptation towards arrogance thinking you're greater than everybody. A temptation towards self-sufficiency, thinking you need nobody. A temptation towards immortality, thinking that because you're at the top, you don't think about when you're going to breathe your final breath. Have this desire of being larger than life, and all of these are lies. In fact, James emphasizes it. He says, For you will pass away. Like a flower of the field, making known that you will die. You will leave your wealth. You will lose it all. And then he uses the flower and the death of the flower to teach us on the transience of life and wealth. Look at verse 11. He says, for the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. Here he references Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 to 8, which is applied to the rich. One commentary calls this an analogy. It is a death of vegetation. As he talks about the flowers, as beautiful and as glorious as they are, a beautiful sight to behold. One thing is for certain is that those flowers will die. A few years ago, for Mother's Day, I tried to be super sweet. I wanted to go all out. I got my wife some flowers. Some beautiful flowers, at least I thought they were. I seeking to express my love and appreciation for my wife, for all that she do for our family. And y'all, she felt loved by it. She got the flowers, really appreciated, and you do what you normally do. You know, you cut the stems, you put water in the vase, and then you put the flowers in the vase, and it's a beautiful sight to behold, and it was wonderful. Gave off this beautiful fragrance, you know what I'm saying, like the whole nine. And then a few days later, what was beautiful began to get ugly. You know, it began to hang over limbs began to fall. That scent became a stench, and so we had to do away with it. It went from the vase to the trash to the garbage. And James here is saying that what happened to that beautiful flower will happen to the rich. He makes known that the rich will die. Look what he says at the very end of verse 11. He says, in the same way, just like what happened to the flower. This is going to happen to the rich. The rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. The rich will die. In fact, James really emphasizes it because in two verses, he emphasizes death. He says he will pass away, verse 10. Verse 11, talking about the flower, he says that it will, this beautiful appearance will perish. And at the end of verse 11, he says the rich will wither away. He's speaking definitively, emphatically, emphasizing it, wanting to get into our thick skulls that you know what? You will die. And so, beloved, it is a dead end to make one's life goal be to live for and be consumed by riches that will not last. It is a dead end. Jesus gets at that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Reality is, beloved, we will die. It will fade and we will go. How often should we be thinking about the reality of our own mortality? Constantly reminding ourselves that this will pass. I know one pastor who told me, In a counseling class, he said, man, here's this one rich brother. He literally had a label and marked destroyed by fire on every single thing that their family is tempted to love so that they can be reminded that you can't keep it. Beloved, we need this word. I definitely need this word because I am tempted to boast in possessions. I'm tempted to boast in things that will not last. That temptation is the strongest when I am not diligently seeking Christ. If we're going to boast in our humiliation, we must seek and treasure Jesus. Because the reality is, when we treasure Christ in his transcendent glory, when we treasure his coming kingdom, our possessions won't possess us. We'll be content in where the Lord has us, and there will be a hunger for what is to come. Satisfied in Christ and salivating for the coming kingdom. Because we are captivated by the glory that Christ has in himself. His beauty, his transcendence. He is amazing, he is eternal, and absolutely nothing compares to him. So friends, if you know yourself to not be a Christian, I am glad that you are here. I want you to know that life is fleeting. What you go through, what you have. The amazing uh, the amazing trips that you may embark on, you it is fleeting. But friends, what God offers is something infinitely and eternally better: life, forgiveness, adoption into His family, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, as He gave His Son who died on the cross, that we may have life. And Jesus rose from the grave, and the invitation for you this very day is to trust in Jesus and be saved. Have life in Christ, because life is only found in him. If you want, you can talk with any members after service. We would love to have this conversation. James is reminding us That what matters most isn't what we have or how much we have it, but who we have. Jesus Christ. And he offers himself freely to all people, rich and poor. He is glorious. And for those who know Christ, we are to boast in him and in him alone. For us, the question isn't if we boast in something. The question for us is what do we boast in? And so what do you boast in? What do you glory in? And another question is how is that helping? How is what you glory in helping you to walk by faith? How is what you glory in helping you to have your gaze set upon Jesus Christ and His coming kingdom. For everything in this life will pass. You know, one of the things I really loved about this passage, what's amazing, is that God He saves people across socioeconomic status. And not only does He do that, but He unites them together in Christ and places them in the same congregation. And they have become family, seeking to love and serve one another, to encourage each other in the faith. And his family has the responsibility to remind one another in what and in who we should glory in as we await together the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. So, beloved, regardless of where you identify, may we encourage one another in this. Seeking to help one another set our gaze upon what is eternal. Just as we sung and hold to God's unchanging hand. Encouraging one another to build your hope on things eternal. If we're going to do that, then we will glory in our spiritual position in Christ. So may we do that. May we also endure trials with hope. Look at verse 12. James says, blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now this promise here, he, what he's doing here is motivating our endurance in the faith. And He starts off with blessed, reminding us of the Beatitudes that we did in the, uh, the response of Scripture reading. And what he says who, he says, is blessed is countercultural to who we would think or who we would assume are actually blessed. Because if we were writing this, we would say blessed is the one who avoids trials, who evades them, who ducks and dodges them, who don't go through anything. But James actually says in the Scripture says, blessed are those who endure trials. Happy spiritually are they, being made whole. They have this steadfast love for Jesus to where their present experience, whether it's persecution, disease, loss, slander, whatever it is, the hardship that they're going through, they're refusing to let it shape their view of God. They're fighting to maintain a right view of God as he's revealed himself in the scriptures they have this unwavering love for Jesus in response to who he is and what he has gone through for them. In this verse, it connects back to the, first two, the first, uh, verses 2 through 4 in James 1, making known that our trials are not for naught. For in chapter, two verse, chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, count it all joy when you experience trials because God is using them to mature us in the faith. He uses our hardship to grow us. And here James reminds us of a promise that God holds out. And the intentions is to aid our endurance to the very end. You know, the reality, think about sports. Many people, not even just sports, but in life, like, man, we can endure a number of things as long as we know that there is purpose behind it and as long as we know that in the end it will be worth it. This is part of the reason why I love post game interviews, love watching them, because those who have been crowned the victor, they talk about the journey. They talk about the practices, the pain that they endured, the long hours, the sleepless nights, the blood, the sweat, and the tears. And because they've made it to the mountaintop, they say that it was worth it. Here, God is making known that our suffering is not pointless. But it's purposeful as God is maturing us. And here he encourages our endurance as he discloses the reward in the end, the crown of life that he has promised. Now, the crown of life is like this wreath that is placed on the head of those who are victorious, those who have competed. Think about athletic games or the Olympics. It is after they win, they get the gold medal. They get the wreath. It is crowned to the victors. Okay, they don't give out participation trophies. You got to actually win. On February 7th, 2023, LeBron James, he surpassed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to be the NBA all-time scoring leader. And y'all, that's an amazing accomplishment. Like, very amazing. 20 years into the league, averaging so many points. This is quite the accomplishment. And you all, if you know of LeBron James, you know that he calls himself, and others refer to him as King James. And so since he got that crown, what he began to do, is this is a little antic, after he does something amazing, he would put like the crown on his head, saying that he is the king. But well, here, God is promising that as we endure our trials by faith, as we make it to the very end, he will give us a crown. He will reward us for our faithful endurance amidst hardship. And this isn't the only place where God talks about this. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, is Jesus is talking to the church in Smyrna, It says, Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into the prison to test you. And you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. This crown that God is offering, it's important for us to remember that this promise doesn't by any means communicate salvation by works. It does not communicate works-based righteousness. That will be a misunderstanding of what James is saying. That will be a misunderstanding of the teachings of Scripture. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The only reason that we are saved is not by works, but by the work of Jesus Christ and trusting in his finished work. And we also have to remember that James is writing to Christians, those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. And we who endure to the very end, our faithfulness is totally dependent upon God. By his grace, he has made us new. He has called us to himself. He has united us to Jesus. He has given us his spirit. He has given us a new heart. He sustains us. The scripture says that he is working right now in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we don't start by trusting in him and end by trusting in ourselves. We continue to persevere in the faith. And as we do that, beloved, what it does is it confirms the effectual call that God has given us. He won't lose one. And so as we endure to the end, by God's grace, through faith in Jesus, he gets the glory alone. Some may be concerned that the motivation will begin to be selfish, but y'all, look at James' words. He says... When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. It doesn't say to those who love it, but to those who love him. Paul says something similarly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, as he talks about this crown of righteousness. He says, wish the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only me, but those who have loved his appearing. The crown is given to those who endure in faith, who love, because we love God. Our affections don't venture from God to his gifts. The crown is sweet, but Christ is the treasure. And beloved, there is no comparison at all. The crown is just a cherry on top. And even as we receive it, We're going to be enamored by the glory of Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain. The saints are worshiping him now in glory. And you know what we're going to likely do? We're going to take that crown as beautiful as it is and we're going to throw it at his feet. Because he is the glorious one. He gets all the glory and the only reason we would be there is because of his finished work. Nobody is saying worthy or us, but we are saying worthy is He, and the blood that He shed, it purchased us. And our endurance, it demonstrates our love for God as He's reigning on our hearts that Christ is worthy of every hardship, every hit, and every criticism. Beloved, this promise is intended to fuel our endurance to the very end. And I don't know if you noticed, but it actually says a lot about God because it testifies to his generosity towards us. That God, by his grace, would save we who are unworthy, who deserve his judgment. He would call us out of darkness into his light. And not only that, but as we endure fully dependent upon him, he is going to give us more. He's given us a crown. That says so much about his generosity, his grace, his love. That he will choose to reward us. Says so much about him and his grace, knowing that we are only there because of grace. And so as we endure trials, beloved, the pain, it is real. The pain, it hurts a lot. Not trying to belittle the pain at all, but we have to be reminded that God is worth it. And here we see once again that a great reversal will take place. This is Jesus, his suffering preceded his glory, him being enthroned. Well, the same will happen for us in a similar way. That the humiliation comes before the exaltation in Christ. That the suffering comes before the glory. The cross precedes the crown. And we can endure as we remember what is temporary and what is eternal. Being mindful of where God is taking us. Paul says in Romans 8, For I consider the sufferings of the present age are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul made the comparison and said there's no comparison at all. That we have that same conviction, beloved, because Jesus is worth it. You know, my brother-in-law, he's a, he's a big hiker. It's part of the reason why he lives on the coast. He loves to hike. He and his wife, their family. And I, I just don't get it, if I'm honest. Like, I, don't, I don't get it at all. I like staying inside the house. You know, vacation wouldn't be hiking for me, not at all. Vacation will be a resort. But for him, he loves to hike. You know, and for him, it's the sight of being at the peak, seeing how amazing it is. It is worth everything that he endured. I mean, because, man, hikers, they, they don't sleep comfortably. They don't eat very good. They encounter they, blisters on their feet. They, got, they may encounter a snake. They may even encounter a bear. But for my brother-in-law... <laughs> He's like, man, the things that I will endure, I'm okay with because when I get to the end, it will be more than worth it. It will be amazing. That sight is so amazing that it is more than worth every pain that I endure in order to get there. And beloved, we're to have the same disposition when it comes to the trials that we experience. So we don't put our heads down and go through it trying to grin and bear. But instead, we lift our heads, put our sight heavenward, and cling to Jesus and take the next step. And if we're going to endure, beloved, it's going to be in the context of the local community. Reminding and encouraging one another to build each other up in Christ. Just as my brother-in-law, he would say the best hikes are not those when he do it by himself. But when he goes with those who know what they're doing, as they're able to encourage one another, they're able to do that together. Well, beloved, we endure with hope in the context of community. Christ has united us. And Christ builds up his people through his people. We strengthen each other's faith as we talk about the word, as we pray for one another, as we pray together. As we prioritize the corporate gatherings. Know that it is necessary for our souls that we may reset and be reminded of what is to come. And so, beloved, if we're going to endure to the end, we need each other. We need to open our mouths and build each other up in Christ, reminding one another of our eternal hope Because the flesh is real and we're constantly prone and tempted to set our gaze here. But Christ uses his people to remind one another of where he's taking us. The eternal glory that is to come. The very end of Revelation, he says, behold, I am coming soon. And we need fellow saints to remind us that Jesus Christ is coming soon. And it will be worth it in the end. That's what James is doing here. Like a great tour guide, he's grabbing our hand and leading us to think about the eternity that is to come, the eternal consummation of God's kingdom. That we, by faith right now, will see our circumstances as difficult as they are in light of the glory that is to come. You know, one of my favorite children's books that I really love reading to my children is Little Pilgrim's Big Journey. I love reading the book. It's a story of Pilgrim's progress as Christian. He becomes a Christian. He is journeying to that celestial city. He's enduring so many trials, so much pain, temptation, and hardship. And I tear up every time when I read the very last chapter When Christian sees the glory, that he enters into that eternal rest that he has longed for. As I read that to my children, I tear up because I know for we who are in Christ, that is where God is taking us. So, beloved, if you want to endure, if you want to glory, we got to remember what Jesus is taking us. The new heavens and the new earth. And we are one day closer to that being our eternal reality. May we help one another endure. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, you are gracious. And in your call upon our lives by your grace, you have brought about a great reversal as we went from spiritually dead to being spiritually alive, from enemies to being Reconciled to being family. A glorious kingdom, it is coming. You have given us precious promises in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to hold fast to Jesus. Knowing that we are being held by him. Help us to encourage one another to endure to the very end with hope. Because our king is worth it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.